God, would you minister to us this morning? Let's just take a moment and uh, I just want to invite you to pray and ask the Lord to speak to you. Now take a moment to ask the Lord to use me to speak to you. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be ever so pleasing to you, God. Amen. Last week, uh, we began a two-part sermon series uh, called Freedom from the Religious Spirit. And we I mentioned how um, it's really important for us to understand the religious spirit because the religious spirit can blind us from seeing God's work in our midst. And we talked about the Pharisees. We talked about how Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, He's God in the human form, walked among the people 2,000 years ago, performed many signs, wonders, miracles, and yet the Pharisees could not see Jesus for who He was. It's astonishing. But the reason was because they were operating out of a religious spirit. And we talked about that and we were looking at Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus outlines the symptoms of the religious spirit. Last week we looked at two of them, two of them. And the first one was they preach but do not practice. So preaching loud, practicing not. We talked about the second symptom was people pleasing. They do things to be seen by others. And so this week we're going to be looking at another uh, three symptoms of the religious spirit. But before we go there, I just want to say, you know, as I was praying and thinking about this uh, particular series, um, God's been kind of changing my perspective a bit, in particular towards the Pharisees. I've been thinking more about the why. Why do people come under the religious spirit? We talk a lot about the what. What is the religious spirit, right? Matthew 23 outlines the what. What it is, how it looks, how it operates, what, you know. We're talking about the what. But the why and the how, that's what God has been speaking to me about. And as I was pondering this, I've been having a perspective change towards the Pharisees. It's kind of like Peter in Acts chapter 10. He had a huge perspective change. In Acts 10, if you recall that story, Peter was hungry. And all of a sudden, he falls into a trance. What a funny uh, reaction to hunger, you know? When I get hungry, I get hangry. Anyone know what you're talking about? You get grumpy, right? Well, Peter falls into a trance. And he sees this vision. And the vision that he sees is this big sheet being rolled out. And on this sheet were all these unclean animals. And so... He's looking at this and a voice calls out to him and says, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no way, I've never eaten anything unclean. And the voice calls out again and says, what God has made clean, don't call unclean. And this was, I mean, perplexing to Peter. What is that supposed to mean? And then God eventually revealed to him what he meant. God was giving Peter a perspective change. And the perspective change was this, that God was doing a saving work even among the Gentiles, 
a people group that the Jewish people thought were unclean people. And so Peter has a perspective change. Now, in, in that sort of way, I've been having a perspective change towards the Pharisees. Because I used to have a very harsh view towards them. But over the past couple of weeks, it's like I've been developing almost a compassion for them. Not that I condone what they, you know, what their practices were. Jesus didn't condone their practices. But I think I get it. I think I get why they were the way they were. And I hope we will too when we get to that part of today's talk. Uh, but first we're going to look at uh, three symptoms, three more symptoms of the religious spirit. So symptom number three is putting non-essentials over essentials. Okay, Matthew 23, 16 to 19 says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if, any, if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? If you're wondering, what is that all? What's that talking about? Well, let me try to explain it this way, okay? I'm sure... Most of us have heard somebody say something like this. I swear on so-and-so's grave that what I'm saying is true. Has anyone heard people say that? Or I swear to fill in the blank, I will pay you back. Right? Have you ever wondered why people say that? Why, why people feel like they have to say that? You think it's because they want to emphasize the, the point more? Maybe they say that because they're making a guarantee statement that what they're saying is true or what they're saying they will make happen, right? Whatever the case, saying that you swear over something uh, communicates its value, what that person or thing means to you, okay? The Pharisees valued the gold and the gifts more than the temple and the altar. If someone swore on the temple or the altar... It didn't matter, but if they so make, made an oath on the temple or the altar, it didn't matter to them, but if they swore over the gold or the gifts, they were bound by the oath. And what that is saying is the Pharisees had it backwards. They, they flipped things around. They valued non-essential things over and above the essential things. That's what it's saying. Their value system was upside down. Church, today... This same symptom of the religious spirit can be in operation in a church. When the church values non-essential things over and above essential things. Now, I've said this before at Trinity, the ABCs of church, right? You've heard me say the ABCs of church. Now, I just want to say this before I go any further. I know it sounds like I'm putting a blanket statement on all churches, I know that not all churches function this way. Okay, so I just want to say that I'm being very general when I say this, right? Not all churches are this way. But the ABCs of church are attendance, building, cash. Okay? And these can be the focus of a church ministry, the value system. It's placed higher than the more essential things, like the people. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 
you are the temple of God. The God, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, the people. The temple is the people. Church is people. Now, I'm not saying that numbers are not important. They are. I'm not saying the building is not important. They are. I mean, we're going through a building refurbishment project, right? It takes money, effort, a lot of time. It's important because we want to maximize the reach and effect of Trinity Church in our community. So it's important. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm not saying that it's not important to have a budget. We need, we need to have a budget, right? But those are not the main thing. The main thing, it's about people. Church is people connecting with Christ and connecting with each other in Christ. That's church. That's the main thing. Churches need to be careful what we value the most because if the ABCs of church are more valuable than walking with Jesus together, then the people become a means to keep the building and the programs running rather than the other way around, a means to grow in the Lord and in spiritual community. We need to be careful. The church needs to flip the value system around if the ABCs of the church is placed higher than people. The building, the programs, they need to be used as a means to foster community and relationship with God. So how do we get there? How does the church get there? Well, it starts with vision. That's why vision is so important. My people perish because there's a lack of vision. It starts with vision, and we need a solid vision to keep us moving forward. If not, the church can get stuck in religiosity. Jesus gave the disciples the vision that we are to go after. Matthew 28, 19, verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Church, we're called to go. We're called to go. We're made up, the church is made up of disciples of Jesus. We're called to go and win people to Jesus. Baptize them, teach them, then send them. You know, it's so awesome to see someone come to know Jesus. It's so amazing to see what happens in the life of someone who's brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. It's so amazing. Their lives are totally transformed. They're born again. They're hungry for God. They ask so many awesome questions. And those of us who've been walking with the Lord, it's like, whoa, it's so exciting. And we get to answer those questions, be a part of bringing up the next generation of disciples of Jesus. At Alpha, when we see someone experience Christ, give their lives to Him, it's awesome. It never gets old. Never. We can run Alpha all the time. And when we see someone come to the, come to know the Lord, it's like we're seeing it for the first time all over again. It's so exciting. We need to keep our focus there. 
That's where the church's focus needs to stay and remain. Then it becomes about the people. It becomes about the people. There's no shortage of things to do when people come to know Jesus. There's no shortage. They need to be taught the ways of the Lord to secure their identity in Christ because the devil's going to come and try to steal that away. We need to help ground them in who they are in Christ. Help them discover their spiritual gifts. Help them to develop a conversational relationship with Jesus. And then send them to go and repeat the process. That's what we need to do. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Making disciples, expanding the kingdom, making an impact in this world for God's glory. The next symptom that I want to talk about is similar to the previous one. Making the minors into majors. Making the minors into majors. Matthew 23, verse 23 to 24 says this. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Isn't that an interesting statement? Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What in the world does that mean? You know, what does that mean? Well, does anyone know what a gnat is? Does anyone know what a gnat is? It's a picture of some gnats. Okay. A gnat is a type of fly. There are many different species of gnats, one of them being the fruit fly. Okay. The tiny little things like that, big with wings, and they swarm by the thousands. Right? Suppose you're out enjoying the weather on a nice day like today, you're out on your deck, you have a nice cold glass of lemonade, right, on the table. You're just basking in the sun. Ah, such a beautiful day. And then you go to take that cup. You go to take a sip and you notice a little floaty thing in there. It's got wings. Okay, just be honest, okay? How many of you would dump the whole thing and just, you know, get a whole new glass of lemonade? How many of you would do that if you saw a little, right? Okay. How many of you would just pick out the the little fruit fly and then drink it? Okay. Okay, most of you. How many of you, you just drink it? Who cares? It's protein, right? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Source of protein, you know? Well, the phrase straining the gnat comes from this idea. Okay, so in Jesus' day, when they had like a jug of water, what they would do is use like a kind of like a cheesecloth to filter that water when they're pouring it into a cup so that gnats couldn't be uh, in the cup, thus straining the gnat. Gnats were considered unclean animals. And the Jewish people, they're very conscious of this, right? They're consciously aware of what not to eat because they're unclean. You know, what the Bible says not to eat. They're very careful not to eat unclean things, Right? And so the gnat was perhaps the smallest of all unclean animals. Very tiny little fruit fly. On the flip side, camels are also unclean animals. Right? They wouldn't eat a camel. But what Jesus is saying here is, you take all that time 
to be mindful of this tiny little gnat, but you'll eat a camel. What that means is they, they take so much care over the tiny details of the law, things that are just minuscule, and yet the weightier issues, they just toss it out, they neglect it, forget about it. Again, it's about people. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. Ministering towards people. They just neglected that. They were cautious about the tithing command, how to categorize the tithing command, but not ministering to people. Church, the church today can get caught up in this as well. The church can be mindful of the small details that we forget about James chapter 1, verse 27, which says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We can forget about Deuteronomy 10, where it says he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, refugees. He loves them giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I believe we as the body of Christ, we need to consider these teachings in the scriptures, talking about serving the poor and the destitute in our city. I believe the body of Christ needs to consider these verses in the Bible when talking about the refugee crisis in the Middle East. Africa, and other parts of the world, what we could do to be a part of supporting them, finding them refuge. Now, I'm not saying every church has to get involved with everything. I know that's, that's impossible. But we have to at least consider that. These are the major details. These sort of things. They are the heartbeat of God. We need the heartbeat of God in the church. If there's no conversation at all over these issues in a church, at all, then a church could be operating in the religious spirit. So what's the solution? Well, it's actually simple. We need to get to know Jesus. We need to get to know Jesus and imitate him. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He had compassion on the hungry, the sick, the lame, the demon-possessed, the blind, the deaf. He touched lepers. He dined with prostitutes. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Justice, mercy, faithfulness were his main thing. We need to make those the main thing also. Again, it's about people. Now, the other things, yes, they're important. Tithing, giving to the Lord, Yes, it's important, but they don't trump people. You know, a clear example of this was the Pharisees when they were upset at Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath, right? They had all these stipulations on what work was on the Sabbath, and Jesus encounters a few people, a man with a shriveled hand, a woman who was crippled, and on the Sabbath he heals them. 
And the Pharisees were so disturbed that he did that on the Sabbath, they neglected to see this, these two people totally set free from their infirmity. They were blinded by this symptom of the religious spirit. They were concerned about minor things. Jesus was about the major things. Lastly, symptom five that I want to talk about. It's actually directly tied to last week's sermon's symptom two, which was people-pleasing. This next symptom is directly tied to that, and it's emphasizing the externals. Okay, verse 25, excuse me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's, dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus, in this part of the passage, is talking about presentation. The Greek word for hypocrite is hypocrites, which means uh, it means performer, stage performer, pretender, actor. That's what the word hypocrite means. A performer, an actor, a pretender. Uh, how many of you remember, I don't know, I'm sure some of you do, a comedian, he was a Canadian comedian named Mike Bullard. Does anyone remember Mike Bullard? Okay, a few of you. Um, you know, he had the show Open Mic with Mike Bullard, another one, Mike Bullard Show. I mean, I didn't watch him too much, but, you know, while I was in high school, I, you know, sometimes would see him on TVs. Kind of a funny guy, I guess. Um, anyway, so my parents, they used to own a convenience store in Mississauga. And uh, I'd help them out quite a lot by working there. And one day, was, as I was working, you know, behind the counter, in walks Mike Bullard. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Mike Bullard. <clears throat> Mike Bullard. And he's like, yeah, hi. I'm like, wow, cool. But something shocked me about Mike Bullard. He didn't really look like how he did on TV. And I'm like, whoa. I mean, I, I, his face was Mike Bullard, but just the way he dressed and all that, no makeup or anything, right? So I'm just like, wow, it's such a stark contrast. And, and, and he was actually kind of grumpy. Uh, but, you know, just just to be fair, he was probably, you know, could have been having a bad day. You know, he's coming in, just having a bad day, and he's kind of grumpy. But uh, he actually came into the st- our store, you know, more than once, like quite a few times. He'd be like, hey, Mike, you know. He, but he was, he was grumpy. But, uh, <clears throat> <clears throat> just again, <clears throat> what was shocking to me, the huge contrast, was seeing this guy on TV how he was on TV performing versus how he was in, in person. Now, I don't know him personally, obviously, but like there's just such a stark contrast, right? Huge difference. And church, us Christians could be that way too. How we are on Sunday versus how we are every day. If there is a very huge divide between who we are on Sunday and who we are every day, 
it's possible, it's likely that we're operating under the religious spirit. Now, I'm being overly general here again, okay? Of course, we have some good days and some tough days, of course, right? There's some days at church when you're here, you've had a rough week, right? Rough month, rough year. And after church, you're just like, I just want to, you know, as soon as Pastor James says, in Jesus' name, amen, you're just wanting to book it out. And, uh, you know, on your way out, somebody stops you. Hi. It's like, oh, man, it's the last thing you want to do is just have a conversation. I, I know. I get that. Okay. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, when I'm talking about uh, this, when I say emphasizing on externals, I'm talking about presentation and performance becoming law. When it becomes law. <clears throat> Being a Christian means dressing a specific way. It means speaking a specific way. You have to learn Christianese. You gotta learn the, you gotta learn that lingo. If you don't speak that lingo, you're not, you're heathen. I mean, that, that, you know what I'm saying? Acting a specific way in church and in front of one another. No wonder when some of us get home from church or home from spending time with church folks, you take a deep breath. <sighs> That's over with, you know. I can breathe now. I mean, that's sad when it gets to that point. So what's the solution? Emphasize your personal relationship with Jesus. And when it comes to others, just be you. Just be who God made you to be. Right? Jesus loves you. He does. Jesus loves you. He may not like every little issue in your life, but he loves you. Live to impress Him. Stay connected to Him. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you're connected to me, you will bear fruit. Let the fruit be what other people see. Not the show. Not the pretending. Let the fruit from an intimate relationship with Jesus be what other people see. Cleaning the inside, which makes the outside clean. What Jesus was talking about when he was talking to the Pharisees. So what does that mean? That means we need to connect with Jesus. Do whatever. Do whatever in order to connect with him, to reconnect with him. Ask him, Jesus, is there anything blocking me from experiencing your closeness in my life? Pray and ask. He will show you. If you want to know how he shows you, Sign up for the Hearing God Seminar. Right? We're going to be talking about developing a conversational relationship with Jesus. Because it's all about connecting with God through praying to Him and hearing from Him. That's the essence of an intimate relationship with, with somebody. Communication. Right? When there's clear communication, there's intimacy. The same, same principle with God. Pray to Him, hear from Him. We need both. So now I, I want to talk about the how and the why the religious spirit comes upon people, okay? But to get there, we need to do a little bit of digging. We have to dig a bit. And we're going to start by digging into uh, the lives of the Pharisees to find out more about who the Pharisees were, okay? The Pharisees... They were a movement of Judaism among four different movements in Judaism. Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, 
zealots. Pharisees were a movement. They were kind of like a political group as well. Okay. Now, the Pharisees and, and rabbis, I should say, rabbis came out of Pharisees. Like Pharisees and ra- rabbis were Pharisees. Okay. So rabbis were a part of this Pharisaical system. Now, the neat thing about the Pharisaical movement is that anyone could become a Pharisee. Right? Anyone could. Not everyone could become a Sadducee. You had to be born in the elite. That they were the elite of society. You had to be born in that realm. So I, and not anyone could just become one, right? Uh, and we, we have examples of that in our world today, right? Being born among the elite of the elite, right? Um, you're born into it. Well, with the Pharisees, it wasn't that way. Anyone could become a Pharisee, right? And in Jesus' day, it was the most honorable thing for a boy to become a rabbi because it was their chance to become someone honorable in society. And so kids by the age of four were put in school, right? Boys at the age of four would go to school and they would learn the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Man, at age four, could you imagine teaching them numbers in in age four? My goodness, I can't even, anyway. But they would learn, they would learn the Torah. Then, then when they hit age six, from age six to ten, they would enter a new, another school. Um, it was called Bet Sefer, which is, it means house of books. And they would learn and memorize the Torah. Okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, by memory. They would have it memorized by age ten. Isn't that amazing? Fascinating? Now, among that group, if there, if there were those who couldn't do that, they were cut. And they were told to go back to their home, back to their father's trade and learn that. And they were told, pray so that your son will be smarter than you. And that was very shameful. It brought shame to be in that number who were cut. Now, for those who uh, moved on from Bet Sefer, they would move on and they would learn the rest of the books of the Old Testament all the way to Malachi, they would learn and memorize the entire Old Testament. I mean, it's just astonishing that they would be able to do that, but they did. Not only that, they learned the art of answering a question with a question. Okay, This was a Jewish form of rhetoric. So if, if, if I were to ask you one plus one, the answer is two. But they wouldn't answer it that way. They would say, okay, so what's one plus one? What is four minus two? That's how they would answer it because it, it required a lot more thinking to answer that way, right? If they failed in this schooling, uh, this, you know, school, then they were told to go back to their father's trade, whether it be carpentry, fishing, whatever it was. They would go learn their father's trade and pray that their son would be born smarter than they were. Again, that's, it was shameful, shameful to be cut. It was a shame-based learning system. And so the Pharisees, the rabbis, they got to where they got to in life by fleeing shame. By trying to flee shame. The ones who were advanced in that way of learning, they didn't get shamed while the majority were shamed. 
And of course, this created the us versus them mentality, the good versus the bad, clean, unclean, holy, unholy, godly, ungodly, smart, unsmart. Okay? It created a divide. Shame is a powerful motivator, but it has devastating results. It creates division. Where did shame come from? Well, it came from the fall, which is outlined in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, when they disobeyed the command of God, the Bible says that their eyes were opened and immediately they felt shame and they hid their nakedness. Shame was a direct result of the fall. And ever since then, the devil has been using shame as a means to trap people into his plan. It divides us from each other. It divides us from God. What was the first thing that that Adam and Eve did when they were shamed about their nakedness? They hid from God. It created a dividing wall between them and God. That's what shame does. The Pharisees were enslaved by shame. Their goal was to flee shame. You and I can also become enslaved by shame. Do you see how I have developed a compassion towards the Pharisees? I can be like them very easily. But there's good news. It's the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus took away our sin. Jesus took away the source of the shame. Jesus took away our sin, our shame, our brokenness. He took it all. He paid the price. He took it all. It's all about Jesus. You and I simply need Jesus. Not everyone else's opinion of us. We need Jesus. Not how other people will see us. We need Jesus. Not more works to make us feel qualified in some way. No, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Not more layers of pretense. We need Jesus. In fact, we all need Jesus. That makes us equal. We all equally need him. doesn't matter how much education one has or how well one can speak, act, and look in front of people. Okay, Not that those are terrible. I'm just saying those are not what defines us as righteous, holy, and godly. It's Jesus. We are equally in need of a Savior to take away our sin and our shame. We don't need the religious spirit to falsely deliver us from shame. The religious spirit doesn't deliver us from shame. It deflects the shame. But shame has a way of creeping back into our lives when we're not connected to Jesus. We need Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I think I'm done. Let's pray. Christ, 
is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Oh, everything I need. When we are weak, Jesus, you are strong. You are everything. You are the hope of glory within us. You are our strength, our portion, our deliverer, our fortress, our friend, our savior. You are everything. It's all about you. May our lives be a testimony of you, of what you are capable of doing in someone's life. Where sin and shame are no longer the motivating factors in our lives. But an intimate relationship with you is. Lord, we want to be connected to the vine. We are your branches. We need, we want to bear your fruit, fruit that will last. The religious spirit does not bear fruit. The religious spirit has appearance of fruit, but really it's not there. Help us to flee from that, Lord. Deliver us from any of that, any of that, if there is any of that, in my life, in my life personally, Lord. And I pray, Father, that ultimately you would move in our lives in such an intimate, powerful way that everything else flows out of that, out of a relationship with you. Help us to keep the main thing, the main thing. To value the essential things over the less essential things. To know the difference. Help us to honor you. To love you. To walk with you. With each other as community here at Trinity. Connected to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Thanks again for this awesome day. It's, this is the day that you have made. And Lord, we'll rejoice and be glad in it. In the name that is above every name, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a wonderful week.